for the past several weeks, we've been working our way through a series on evangelism. And one of the things I've realized is that maybe we haven't outright defined the term. We've discussed topics related to evangelism, but I'm not sure we've clearly addressed when a Christian says evangelism or when they talk about an evangelist, what do they mean? So let me ask this question. When you hear the term evangelism, what comes to mind? Do you think of televangelists? People who preach on TV, they tend to get in a frenzy as they're preaching a particular message. We also might think of some of their character collapses due to illegal funneling of money or extramarital affairs they were caught in. Or maybe you think about street evangelists. The person yelling, repent or go to hell to everyone who walks by a particular street corner. Or perhaps you think of methods of evangelism, particular strategies to share the gospel with someone who's not a Christian. For me, this is the kind of thing that comes to mind. I remember a youth group experience I had, and one of the activities of this youth group was to take part in an evangelism excursion. To engage in this activity, we were to walk up to strangers and ask two questions. One, if you died today, do you believe you'd go to heaven? And two, tell me why you think that. These questions were to provide an opportunity to share an evangelistic tract, a little booklet that outlined the gospel. While I don't remember the title of this particular tract, I remember it had inside it what many individuals call the four spiritual laws. For those of you unfamiliar with the four spiritual laws, they are one, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Two, man is sinful and therefore separated from a holy God. Three, Jesus Christ is God's son and by his death our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God. And four, to be right with God, we must place our faith in believing Christ died for our sins. At the end of this tract, we were to present an opportunity for an individual to place their faith in Christ. They could pray what many called the sinner's prayer, and in that moment, they could then identify themselves as a Christian. When I think about evangelism, this method of evangelism is what comes to mind. I believe many of us, when we think about evangelism, this is what we're thinking of. A particular method, or a particular program. What method do I use to evangelize to others? What steps can I best take to engage non-Christians? Now, I don't want to dismiss the importance of method, but in many ways, method is not what we're after in this series. At its core, the New Testament term evangelist means bearer of good tidings, or bearer of good news. There is a God who exists. He is a good God. There is a a God who has sacrificed himself and sent his son to die for sinners like you and I. That God is not known. The world is filled with people embracing alternate religions, denying the deity of Christ, embracing a false Christianity, or rejecting religion altogether. Christians are surrounded by people who do not know God. They do not know his goodness and greatness. They do not know what he has done for them. In evangelism, Christians want others to know this God and the good news about this God. To live in a way that others take notice of Christ 
It's less about a particular program or method and far more about lifestyle and relationship. And so as we've engaged this series, we've talked less about evangelism as a program and more about the posture of an evangelist. An evangelist is one who is committed to praying for their non-Christian friends. An evangelist is one who critiques and understands the gospel of the culture and is able to understand and communicate the biblical gospel of grace. An evangelist, rather than someone who preaches at others, is one who asks questions and listens and engages the objections of others. An evangelist is one who is willing to go to those who are lost, sometimes to proclaim good news to those in other nations. And an evangelist is someone who cares about social justice type issues, shining light on sins of oppression and injustice while seeking to help people understand God's character in full. This morning, as we continue to discuss the posture of an evangelist, we will discuss the topic of hospitality. And so to introduce this, this topic, I want to engage in a little light-hearted evangelistic exercise. We've talked about how evangelism involves telling others the good news about Jesus. As we tell others about Jesus, we want people to believe he is their Savior. We want them to embrace him as Lord. We want others to believe in something we believe in. So while the stakes are certainly different, there are many things we evangelize about in life. Some of us evangelize about physical fitness. We want others to embrace a life of modified eating and regular exercise. Others evangelize about things like essential oils or a particular brand of beer. Still others evangelize about things like Dave Ramsey's financial peace program. If you take his course and follow his principles, you too can experience financial peace. So in our lighthearted exercise, I have something to evangelize about. At the Gardner House, we really like a particular kind of candy. It's called Sour Patch Kids. While they may not be nutritious, when my kids and I eat Sour Patch Kids, we have lots of fun. And I believe you too, if you ate Sour Patch Kids, you would experience the same type of fun. Now, let's think about how I would help you understand how awesome Sour Patch Kids really are. I could give you some information. I could tell you the slogan is, first they're sweet, then they're sour, then they're gone. I could tell you the history of Sour Patch Kids, that the individual who came up with this candy was named Frank Galatoli. They came out in the 1970s, and they were, they were first called Mars Men. But after inspiring a few UFO sightings, the name was changed to Sour Patch Kids. I could tell you that you need to know this information, but I I don't think it would make a believer out of you. If you hang around me for a while, you might see me eat a few Sour Patch Kids. You'll see my face light up. You'd hear me say, this is so good. You might be a little more convinced that you should try one, but you likely still wouldn't be a believer. Now, I might offer you some, so maybe I pull off a little tiny piece because I want to keep them all for myself, and I give it to you. You may experience a little bit of what I'm talking about, but more than anything, you're probably shocked by my stinginess. (laughs) Or I might decide to give you several pieces. I I might invite you into the experience of how my family and I enjoy eating Sour Patch Kids together. 
I'd offer you several of them. As I engaged in hospitality and evangelism, you'd have the opportunity to taste and see what our experience is like. As we were generous and open our home, you'd see something different. You'd get a much fuller and deeper experience of what we professed to believe. You see, hospitality is integral to effectively evangelize. In the passage read earlier, one of Jesus' disciples, Levi, also known as Matthew, he experiences a radical conversion to follow Christ. And as a result, Matthew wants his co-workers and his neighbors and his friends to experience something different. He wants them to know Christ. So Matthew throws a party. He engages in evangelism and hospitality. And so to better understand the relationship between evangelism and hospitality, we're going to unpack this passage and make observations about three things. One, the person providing hospitality. Two, the personal price of providing hospitality. And three, the person receiving hospitality. Those of you that have your Bibles with you, open them up to Luke chapter 5, verse 27, and let's learn more about the person providing hospitality. After this, he, and he is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, and also called Matthew. This is the same individual who would later author the first gospel in the New Testament. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. The person who is about to provide hospitality is a tax collector. Now, if any of us believe Luke is introducing us to some respectable or honored professional in the community, we'd be wrong. We'd be more on track if we believed tax collectors were disliked in Jesus' day to the degree and extent that individuals who worked for the IRS are today. But even then, we'd be misled. Tax collectors are often uniquely mentioned in the Gospels. They are uniquely mentioned because they were the most despised and despicable individuals in Israel. It was widely known that the tax they imposed on individuals was excessive. Because in addition to being paid by the Roman government for their work as a tax collector, they would charge people extra and keep those funds for themselves. Further, tax collectors worked for the Roman government. Romans had now occupied the nation of Israel for nearly a hundred years. And as a result of that occupation, Israelites were put in prison, they were oppressed, they were sometimes even murdered. And so tax collectors, because they're working for the Roman government, they were viewed as traitors. Traitors to their fellow citizens, traitors to their friends, even traitors to their own families. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector told by Luke in the 18th chapter of this gospel, we read the rightful place of a tax collector in the temple was to stand far off. They were not allowed to pass a location known as the court of the Gentiles. So not only were tax collectors believed to have betrayed their own people, they were believed to have betrayed their own God. The Jewish Talmud, a book providing instructions for how Israelites were to live, it actually provided guidance that it was okay to lie and deceive a tax collector because that is what a professional extortioner deserved. 
So when Luke tells us Matthew was a tax collector, he's not telling us this to emphasize Matthew was high society, but rather to emphasize how low he really was. Now, some tax collectors, they were more visible than others. Luke tells us this this tax collector worked at a tax booth. In a parallel account of this story in the Gospel of Mark, we learn Matthew's tax booth was by the sea. This meant Matthew collected taxes from local fishermen. He was highly visible as a tax collector in the community. So not only was he a tax collector, everyone knew he was a tax collector. Everyone knew he was a traitor. Everyone knew he had betrayed worship of his God. Matthew wasn't high society. He was the lowest of the low. This is the person who will provide hospitality. The idea that Matthew is the one providing hospitality, it's a bit perplexing. Well, he certainly had extensive material resources at his disposal, it would seem his standing in society would disqualify him from being a model host. Our idea of a model host, a winsome host, would be one who's at least well-liked by his neighbors. Not the individual everyone wants to move out of the neighborhood. Not the individual everyone believed it would be okay to vandalize from. Matthew was rejected, he was reviled, and everyone knew it. And he, Jesus, said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Many of us like to root our ability to provide hospitality in earthly resources the size of our home, the the cleanliness of our home, the size of our living room, whether our house is freshly painted and contains the latest updates, how special the food is that we're able to put on the table, the size of our bank account, the status of our relationship with others. Scripture leads us to root our ability to provide hospitality in something else. We are to root our ability to provide hospitality in the God who's saved us. When we've given up everything for him, earthly resources don't matter. What matters for the person who provides hospitality is the Savior who's captured their heart. Jesus had captured Matthew's heart. When Jesus captures our heart, we give up everything. And regardless of the meal we put on the table, regardless of how we feel about our home, we can't not be hospitable towards others. We can't not invite others in. We can't help but have an unremitting desire to welcome individuals to know Christ. This is the person who provides hospitality. Matthew's heart has been captured by Christ, and so he decides to host a party. This brings us to the the personal price of providing hospitality. And Levi, Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew hosts this great feast. And this wasn't a potluck type of gathering. The language is more like a reception or a wedding reception or a big banquet. And Matthew provides the food, and he provides the drink. This would certainly come at a great financial price, but it wasn't the only price Matthew would pay. The Pharisees grumbled that Matthew's guests were tax collectors and sinners. In the Pharisees' mind, this meant they were dirty. They were unclean. They were unholy. 
For Matthew to invite Jesus into his home, for Jesus to accept his invitation, for them to be seen dining and reclining with these dirty guests, because of it, Matthew and Jesus paid the price of ridicule. But because Matthew's heart had been captured by Christ, because he wanted to introduce his friends to Jesus, he was willing to pay this price. The price of introducing our friends to Jesus, it's not cheap. One of the individuals I have learned the most about hospitality from is a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And while Butterfield is most famous for her radical conversion to Christ while living as a lesbian gay rights activist, when she speaks and writes about hospitality, Christian leaders listen. During a recent interview, she said this regarding the price of providing hospitality. We would do well to think about hospitality in a similar way that we do tithing. You know, at the end of the year, you see your tithe statement from your church, and you know that it should hurt. You should look at that, and it should smart. It should really catch you by surprise. Now, she makes the point that we don't want to make this a works righteousness issue, and there are seasons, of course, when your home does need to be private. But we should encounter far more hospitality in the church than we actually do. When you look around your church, and if no one is practicing in a daily way radically ordinary hospitality, that's a toxic issue. Butterfield recognizes many in our churches do not like to pay the price of the language she uses, radically ordinary hospitality. Radically referring to in our natural state, we're much more likely to be self-absorbed, self-centered, perhaps even family-centered rather than other-centered. Ordinary, because we're not talking about the extraordinary. We're talking about inviting people into our everyday life and rhythms. Radically ordinary hospitality. Having people over for lunch and dinner in an ordinary way. Having people enter into ordinary family devotions. Generously offering to pay for others' meals and drinks when we go out to lunch. Bringing food into the office Encountering individuals in need and offering to meet those needs with ordinary conversation or ordinary material means. Radically ordinary hospitality. You will pay a personal price. One of the remarkable things about the God of Christianity is that he didn't just give us doctrinal information. He was hospitable towards us, and in his hospitality towards us, he sacrificed much. For Christ, he surrendered his status, and he surrendered his safety and security in heaven to enter the womb of Mary and take on the form of a weak and helpless baby. In going to the cross, he sacrificed his status as being sinless, and he took on the punishment for the sins of man to the point he was beaten He was scourged and nailed to a cross. He gave up his life for us. This is the hospitality he has shown us. When Christians engage in hospitality, they are modeling the hospitality they've been shown by their God. For those who want specifics as to what that may mean you need to surrender, you're looking for a bit of the how-tos, let me give you three. One, money. Having people into our home, it costs Money to feed them. Welcoming the children of our neighbors or our coworkers. Toys might get broken. During large gatherings, someone might spill coffee or beer on the carpet or, or couch. 
In the same interview I referenced earlier, Butterfield shares that her family often spends $500 more a month on food, whether that's groceries or going out to dinner with others when practicing radically ordinary hospitality. Friends, you will not find that in Dave Ramsey's financial peace plan. (laughs) Being hospitable, imaging the hospitality you've been shown in Christ, you will sacrifice your financial security. This is a weak example, but but last year, many of you know, Michelle and I bought a 12-passenger van. We didn't buy it because Michelle looks awesome behind the, the steering wheel of that vehicle, although she does. And we didn't buy it because we plan on having five more kids. The verdict is still out on that one. We bought it because we weren't able to invite other families into carpooling with us on excursions. We bought it because as our teens get older, we want them to be able to demonstrate hospitality towards teens in the neighborhood or teens they participate in activities with. This required us to sacrifice our emergency fund for a season. When we engage in hospitality, when we're modeling the hospitality we've been shown in Christ, we're willing to give up security for the sake of inviting others in. Two, time. Pausing for conversations with your neighbors, preparing meals for your strangers, preparing meals for strangers, sitting down for lunch or going out for drinks with your coworkers, listening to questions, engaging the struggles of others, these things will cost you time. This time is not convenient. Many of us are all too busy with other activities, church activities, work activities, school activities, sport activities. To commit to hospitality, you will need to give up some of these. You will need to make time for it. And sometimes you will need to be hospitable when it's least convenient. When you engage in hospitality, you will be tired. You will tend to feel burdened. You will likely be stressed. Biblical hospitality should be a sacrifice of our time. And three preferences. This is an interesting one. Many of us like to elevate issues of preference to the point they sometimes become sacramental. Getting our kids to bed at a particular time. Having family devotions every night. Not having particular food or drink at gatherings. Preferences for how kids act in our home. Now, I'm not saying we don't think about protecting our kids, but sometimes we neglect to remember it is a God who protects us and our families from the evil one and not necessarily the boundaries we prefer to place around us. We may need to surrender preferences for the sake of hospitality. I remember a time we were part of a small group and we had some individuals who we wanted to to join in. We were meeting on Tuesday night or something like that and they could only join us on a Wednesday night. I think they actually played World of Warcraft on the night we were meeting. So we sacrificed our preference to meet on that particular night for the sake of hospitality. So someone could play World of Warcraft and they could join us during our gathering. One of the reasons we do not engage in hospitality all that well is because we're unwilling to surrender preferences. That person should be willing to meet on the night we meet. That person should be willing to give up World of Warcraft. We elevate issues of preference like this, and it robs us of opportunities to demonstrate hospitality to others. Christians profess belief in a generous God. Christians say they want others to know how much they've been blessed because of Christ. But rather than image a Savior who's been generous towards us, 
we oftentimes are more likely to only provide doctrinal information similar to only providing factual information about the candy we like. Or or we're more likely to be stingy and share paltry pieces of candy rather than radically be generous with the gifts God has given to us. The gospel calls Christians to practice hospitality. It should hurt. This is the personal price of providing hospitality. So who's the the person receiving hospitality? And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi and Matthew made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Matthew invites his fellow co-workers over. As we've already discussed, Matthew's fellow tax collectors, they're not highly regarded. While the author of the Gospel of Luke uses the language tax collectors and others to describe Matthew's guests, the Pharisees are particular. They want to make sure they're identified as tax collectors and sinners. To better understand the significance of this language, it's helpful to know a little bit about one of the key cultural questions in Jesus' time. And that question was, who was it okay to eat with? At this particular time, as we said earlier, the nation of Rome occupied the Israelites' homeland. And the Pharisees, they had this belief that in order to be restored, the people of Israel needed to be pure. So they taught that the the purity laws of the temple where where they worshipped, they should be extended to the home. And that meant the unclean, the dirty, the sinners, they were not welcome at one's table. Their presence at lunch or dinner, their presence in the home, it would rob the home and their hosts of their purity. They would be corrupted by the presence of these guests. Luke records the language, Jesus reclines at the table with them. This act of reclining implied welcoming one another in a very close, personal type of way. It would kind of be like me coming over for dinner, us heading over to the living room for drinks and desserts, and me me laying on your couch as we continued to visit. At this point, we're not, we're not trying to impress one another with formalities. We're, we're on the same level. We're enjoying one another's company. This is the type of hospitality Matthew and, and Jesus, for that matter, offered to those perceived to be dirty and unclean. Paul tells Christians in the book of Romans, seek to show hospitality. This is the kind of relationship he has in mind. The Greek, Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. And what this word literally means is love of strangers or the pursuit of strangers. While we do find an emphasis to demonstrate hospitality to other Christians in the New Testament, ultimately the emphasis of biblical hospitality is relating to strangers. So, hospitality is not having your relatives over. That's a family gathering. Hospitality is not having your best friends over to watch the football game. That's, that's a restful gathering. Hospitality is not gathering with a few individuals to scrapbook or to have a LuLaRoe party or to watch the Real Housewives of Orange County. I'm not sure what those gatherings are, but it's not hospitality. (laughs) And hospitality is not gathering with your friends from church. That's fellowship. 
It's an important activity, but it's not biblical hospitality. Hospitality is the love and pursuit of strangers. And not so much the love of strangers, meaning people you've never met. Strangers in New Testament times, they were individuals who were foreigners with no rights or privileges. When a church or a nation had boundaries of who was in and who was out, strangers were the ones who were on the outside looking in. When the New Testament uses the word strangers in relation to God's people, it's often talking about non-Christians, people who are not part of God's covenant people, people who have rejected God, people who do not know Christ as Lord. The person receiving hospitality is a stranger. They are on the outside looking in. They're not likely the person in this room. Christians are, the, are, are to love them and pursue them. Biblical hospitality has been far less common among Christians than it should be. Many of us love gatherings like the fellowship gathering, the restful gathering, and the family gathering, but to intentionally commit to what Butterfield calls radically oriented hospitality, that's not common. That's not normal. Maybe it's because we're too busy filling our calendars and we leave no time for biblical hospitality. Maybe it's because Christians are fearful Like the Pharisees, we look at the sick and sinful around us and we worry about them corrupting our homes and our kids. Maybe it's simply because we love comfort, the price of hospitality, giving up our time, our preferences, our treasures. It's simply too much. When listening to Butterfield, she recognizes there are a multitude of reasons Christians disengage from hospitality. But often it comes down to a weak understanding of sin, a poor understanding of who we are as sinners, and maybe even a faulty understanding of our salvation. I think if we do understand that we are daily made corrupt and guilty by original sin and manipulated by indwelling sin, we're not going to be so quick to have a sentimental approach to what we perceive to be our neighbor's problems. We're not going to be so quick to assume our neighbors aren't simply people who haven't made the good choices that we've made. We won't be so quick to assume our neighbors that are obviously sinning, all they need to do is get cleaned up in a behavioral or moral way. We will remember that we were people who were so bad off, we needed to be rescued. Sin is not taking the wrong exit on the highway. Sin is deception, and deception means being taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. When you are deceived by your sin, you need someone to rescue you. And so I think a purely hospitable Christian community has its theology in hand, and it sees the cruelty of a theology that says to its neighbor, just snap out of it and make the right choices. When Christians are not offering hospitality to the stranger, to the tax collector and sinner, to the prostitute, to the thief, to the substance abuser, to the couple rejecting principles of fidelity in marriage, perhaps it is because we have a weak understanding of sin and who we are as sinners and what it means for us to be saved. Like the Pharisees, we categorize individuals in our neighborhood and work environment as righteous and clean those who go to church, those who lead morally upright lives. And we categorize others as sinners and dirty, those who engage in drunkenness, those who do not honor biblical fidelity and biblical sexuality, those who are dirty because of their colorful speech, 
They're not dirty because they are, are deceived and held captive to an enemy. They are dirty because of the poor choices they've made. And because we don't want to get dirty, we don't want our kids to be contaminated, we keep the sinner out of our house and away from our dinner table. And we neglect to understand how the sin of the Pharisees is corrupting our home and corrupting our kids already. In Luke's Gospel, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus questioning his disciples as to why he eats with the dirty and why he associates with the unholy and the unrighteous. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus tells the Pharisees, the person I show hospitality to, it's not the one who believes he is clean. It's not the one who believes he is healthy, wealthy, and fit. The person I show hospitality to, it is the dirty. The one who knows they struggle with sin. The, the one who, who is struggling and is weak. And in his response, there's a bit of a decision point for the Pharisee, for the person who's not being hospitable. If Christ came for the unholy, if Christ came for the one filled with sin, if Christ came for the one who is dirty and who is struggling, is that me? At the core of his statement, do we believe we are made right with God by our righteous acts? or by the righteous one who rescued us. And if we believe in line with the biblical gospel that it's the righteous one who rescued us, if we believe the Savior spilled his blood out for a sinner like us, we will pursue individuals with sordid paths and current struggles. For when we understand the person receiving hospitality is someone who's sinful and sick like us, our, our heart can't help but break and bend for our neighbor, for our coworker for the family member that is not a Christian. This is the person Christ offers hospitality to, and that person is us.